Money Sense is brought to you by Ellen Becker Investment Group, four-time recipient of the Better Business Bureau Torch Award for business ethics and integrity. Ellen Becker Investment Group is the only Wisconsin investment company to receive this prestigious award more than once by providing exceptional planning and extraordinary service each and every day. Go to ellenbecker.com and listen to Money Sense Saturdays at 2 and Sundays at noon. Welcome to Money Sense. I'm Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor for Ellen Becker Investment Group. Ellen Becker Investment Group is located in Pewaukee, just north of I-94 between 164 and Highway F in Ridgeview Corporate Park and in the village of Whitefish Bay in the Equitable Bank Building across from Winkies. We also service clients in Bonita Springs, Florida. Visit ellenbecker.com for more details. Today, our guest is Dick Schiller with Pavlik Investment Advisors. And Dick's been on the show with me a number of times in the past. Uh, Dick and his partner, Terry Pavlik, are partners uh, to EIG and help us manage a fixed income bonds strategy. Dick's also a chartered financial analyst. And, uh, you know, we really welcome you back to the show, Dick. We're excited to have a good show today. Yeah, great, Jamie. Happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Excellent. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the first quarter. Obviously, we're in the new year. Can't believe it's four years since COVID really started. And boy, it's been a little bit of a wild ride these last couple of years, uh, 2022 especially. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But also wanted to kind of talk a little bit about where we ended up 2023. So the last time we got together in November, uh, we had reflected on a number of things in terms of where the markets had been throughout the year. And it, it was fascinating because we saw from July to November quite a dip, and then we ended up with a bit of a rally. Uh, ironically, and you know, I guess for the good of everyone invested in stocks, the S&P 500 rallied and finished the year up north of 24%, which I think was uh, a little bit of a shock for most people. So tell me, you know, in terms of where you think we ended in terms of the year overall, any thoughts of reflection on that? Yeah, certainly, certainly. You know, you're right. It, it, it's amazing to me when you say COVID was four years ago, and I was doing the math in my head. But you are you are right, and it seems like it's still here though, because uh, the, our kids were sick for two weeks. Lake Country Montessori <laughs> was shut down, and then our kids got sick later. But anyway, we're uh, we're getting through. We're healthy. Uh, it, it's this Wisconsin weather that we're beating. But with respect to the market and and the COVID shock that started in 2020, February 2020. You know, we're still talking about it today, and rightfully so, because it's still having such a meaningful impact on the markets. And really what, after that, you know, deep uh, economic shutdown and then the release and, and you know, flooding the system with, with stimulus, both fiscal and monetary stimulus, uh, and then people, you know, the, the natural psychology of people wanting to get out and one of the hottest sectors right now is travel, right? Like Marriott's at an all-time high. People, I think, are shifting some of their... Uh, desires from goods to, to to travel to to experiences to to getting out there and and doing things and um, that's where we're seeing you know a lot of the inflationary pressure and what uh, you know you mentioned 2022 being a tough year the 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 big uh, word of that year uh, besides inflation I thought was transitory and yep. the Fed pounding down that 
you know, inflation is transitory, inflation is transitory, you know, this will get back down. And, you know, maybe it was because it has come back down. I just don't know what the definition of transitory is. Is that two months or yep. two years or three years? Forever changed. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but if your definition of transitory was two years, it probably was transitory because, you know, a lot of the inflation reports right now, you know, we're, we're in the threes, 3.8 if you look at core um, but it, when you break it down and look at the composition of what's in inflation, and I think why the market has gained so much comfort and, and confidence uh, with, with the trajectory of inflation is that sh the shelter component makes up almost 40% of that CPI number. And everyone pays so much attention to CPI, and, and, and rightfully so. It's a big number. It, you know, it, it's been moving the markets over the last two years. But some of the frustration that I have, at least, is that the shelter component that's 40%, by far the most important factor in inflation, is six to nine months lagging. And yep. so now that we're all CPI experts, because it's all we focused on, I think a lot of people know that. But I think, well, why don't we make that better and change it? Uh, but then, then you don't have comparability from this period to last period. So sure. what they've done is they say we're going to continue the, the way it is. So then all of a sudden you have all these economists that have their own estimate for shelter. So, you know, we've looked more at Zillow uh, mm -hmm. and, and Redfin that have rental year over year. You know, you can look at Airbnb has their own uh, estimate for where rents are going at, at their places and VRBO. And, and that seems to be a much more um, closer to reality and present day. Yep. It takes out the six to nine month lag. So on inflation, you know, if you adjust shelter out, um, there are a lot of studies out there that say we're, we're below 2% inflation uh, and have been for several months. If if you take that 6% from shelter and say, you know, rents in reality, Zillow, Redfin, Airbnb, they're, they're flat. So if you put a zero there, um, and, and the other piece is, is two thirds of this country mm -hmm. do own their homes. And yep. if, if they have a fixed rate mortgage that isn't currently uh, adjusting, their their payment is is the change in payment is zero, right? It, it hasn't adjusted because you lock in that lower rate. So um, inflation is still going to be the most topical thing in 2024 as we look to next year too. The big question mark is going to be, um, you know, it's definitely come down. One, will that continue to come down? And two, how fast? Uh, and then the the result that depending on where those numbers come in, then the big debate is, is Fed and, and rate cuts and, and what we expect in the interest rate sure. market. Yeah, and we're going to get into some of that today. Uh, you made a reference in our last show about taking the escalator ride down and then taking the elevator up. And toward the end of last year, we kind of experienced that elevator ride with the S&P finishing up in the all-time high area. Now, with mortgage interest rates, I just saw uh, yesterday, I was, I was looking, the 30-year fixed rate mor uh, mortgage is somewhere around 6.825, 6 and 5 eighths, or yeah. 6 and 7 eighths, actually. So it's fascinating to think that we've gone so quickly into that realm. Um, and, you know, maybe we can go back and just explain, you know, what the CPI number is and what it means, consumer price index. And then what that means for the, you know, inflation and the reason behind why the Fed has done what it's done. And then at this point, what is, what are they going to do? I mean, we don't have the crystal ball. We don't really know. But what is it likely that they might do next? 
Yeah, totally. So, you know, CPI, Consumer Price Index, and then also the the PCE, the Personal Consumer Index, is what the Fed looks at. But those two metrics are really our main gauges of inflation in the economy. And the, the Fed has a dual mandate to keep employment high, or, or in other words, unemployment low, and to keep inflation low. And they've done really, really good at keeping employment high, uh, unemployment low, and mm-hmm. inflation, you know, they were wrong. Many people were wrong uh, and, and didn't expect to see what came in 2022. Uh, and then on the other side, I think people were generally wrong thinking that inflation wouldn't fall as fast as it did in, in 2023. And, you know, what we were talking about, people start looking at really diving deep into the data and being like, you know what, why, why don't we put a zero for shelter? And then what does that mm-hmm. real true inflation number look like? And you know, now people, it, it, I always get a little bit cautious when people are talking about adjusted, adjusted numbers because I was like, well, what's the base? But, you know, it, it does make sense uh, to, to try to be as accurate in real day um, as possible. So that it, it is the most important uh, number out there today still because it's determining of, of what the, the Fed will do. And, and currently, you know, the Fed in their last meeting, they said, we think we're going to cut three 25 basis point cuts, which are you know 0.25%. Uh, and currently they have their overnight Fed funds rate at, at five and a quarter to five and a half. It's a range, but you, know, you can call it five and a half. And the Fed says we're going to cut 0.75%. And the market says, we think we're, you're going to cut one and a half percent. So there's a big disconnect between where the Fed is and where the market is, and and something has to give. Someone's going to yep. be right. They can't both be right, and, and those are estimates where they'll be by the end of the by the end of 2024. You're listening to Money Sense, and today we have our guest Dick Schiller with Pavlik Investment Advisors. Dick's a chartered financial analyst, and we're talking about kind of where we ended up the year with uh, respect to the interest rate environment, and how that is affecting inflation in terms of where we've been and kind of where we're headed. Um, so one thing that uh, I did notice, and I mentioned interest rates having an effect on mortgages, uh, there was some statistics that had been published recently that shows nearly 9 in 10 U.S. mortgage holders have a rate below 6%. And with that being the case, you know, we have a shortage in housing. Where do you see that playing into things in terms of maybe the supply side of, of real estate, residential? And is that a safe place for people to look at, you know, investing at this point in time? Yeah, I, I think uh, on that housing topic, what, what also is fascinating to me about that chart, yes, 9 and 10 have a, a mortgage rate below 6%. But the other thing is about 55 to 60% have a mortgage rate below 4%. Incredible. So that, that, that's really incredible and, and hopefully – you know, your financial advisors were, were telling and advising clients, you know, say, hey, you know, can you refinance that loan? You really should be at the three, you know, below 4% for sure for, for much of 2020, 2021. You know, if you remember after when COVID hit, the 10-year dropped to 0.5% and how you, the banks roughly will, uh, will value their mortgage uh, mortgages and the rates that they will put out is about 2% plus that 10 year. So if you time the absolute bottom, I do have some friends, I think they're at 2.75, which is, is shocking. Um, but that's that's something that we can also talk about a lot. Uh, there, there's a lot more detail. Definitely want to get into uh, housing in, in one of our next segments. That sounds great. And 
we're gonna with that we're gonna take a brief break and we'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money Sense. I'm Jamie Williams, wealth advisor with Ellen Becker Investment Group, and today we're with Dick Schiller with Pavlik Investment Advisors. And before the break, we were talking about housing and interest rates, a lot of different things that are important for people to be considering right now. And uh, you know, one of the things that I was curious about in terms of interest rates is the effect on rents. What type of effect does an increasing rate environment like this have? And if the the market is pricing in rate reductions further in the year, what is that going to do for people? Is it going to keep them on the sidelines in hopes that rates are going to come down? Or, you know, the Fed's been kind of talking higher for longer. So just a couple thoughts on that. Yeah, totally. I mean, housing is is such a big part of, of people's financial plan and their financial net worth. And it's something that Generally, you, you revisit once every 10 years. People on average move every 10 years, but it, it is so, so crucial to, to building long-term wealth as the decisions you make within housing. Uh, and and it definitely looking back uh, with, with playing Monday morning quarterback, you know, it, locking in a 3% mortgage rate when the money market funds are five and a quarter today, uh, very, very risk conservative uh, ways of making money and making that spread. That's definitely you know value creation. That's not to say if 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 you weren't able to lock in a rate, um, housing is is life dependent, mm-hmm. right? Let let's say you were you in the medical field and you were doing a one year residency somewhere, and you said, hey, I'm not going to be here for the very long term. That in that situation it makes much more sense to to rent. Uh, and and the other thing on the rental side is that what we were talking about in that first segment with the components of of CPI is that rents from from Zillow, from Redfin, from Trulia, they're they're all showing apartment rents as fairly flat year over year. So rents have not, you know, gone up if you look this year versus last year. Conversely, if you compare that to the mortgage market, it, it's dependent on what rates are. Yeah. And and rates are much higher than where they were a year ago. So it's gotten more expensive to buy a home today um, than where where it, it, in comparison to renting. One of the charts that I like to look at is uh, is U.S. median housing payment as a percentage of the median income. So if you're buying a new house today, what percentage of your median income is going to go to principal and interest? Otherwise, you know, people call it P&I, uh, mm-hmm. taxes, uh, insurance. That's the, the three components that make up the, the far majority of your mortgage payment. And the chart is pretty astonishing going back to the early 2000s. We peaked at 42% in 2006, uh, the housing. We remember 07, we remember 08. That percentage came down very, very quickly to to drop into the mid-20s. Uh, and also a large driver of that was that rates were falling during that period, right? The Fed yep. was cutting rates to stimulate the economy. Currently, we're at 45.3%. So the median wage earner to buy the median house would have to contribute 45% of his or her net worth to to buy an average house, right? And that's average. There, there, there are uh, definitely swings on both sides uh, of that 45%. But that is an uh, astonishingly high number that, uh, to me, it doesn't seem sustainable that it can yeah. can be up here for this long. Um, the general rule of thumb is is you really don't want 
that number to be above 33%. So yeah. of, of your you know, median income relative to your, your median housing payment. Um, so something has to give. You know, either rates have to come back down, and, and I I think the Fed is, is lowering rates this year, the big debate about how much, but that will will have pressure, uh, lower downward pressure on mortgage rates, uh, but also probably not much, right? I, yeah. it, we, we're talking about lower rates, and we got a couple of questions from clients that, well, you know, you kept saying higher for longer, higher for longer. Are you backtracking on that? Like, is that dead? And I'm like, well, you you know, you mentioned, Jamie, the mortgage rate, uh, 6.75% for a 30-year fix. To me, that doesn't mean higher for longer is dead. That, right. That's still a pretty high rate. You know, they've come down, but... They, they've come down marginally. Uh, rates are, are still very high when you compare it, especially to the time period of the 2010s uh, post the great financial crisis. You know, and that's a good point, too, because the mortgage interest rate environment is directly tied to the 10-year, typically, right? It's the 10-year plus a spread of somewhere around two. And we've seen that it peaked almost at five during our last show exactly. in November. And now it's come back down. We're sitting somewhere in around four and a half, four. Yeah, four and a quarter. And a quarter four, now. One, yeah. And so yeah. with that, you know, kind of being the environment that we're in, people are starting to look at that again and understand. Now, so much of that discussion falls into everyone's own unique situation. I would never advise a client to spend more than, you know, 40% of their, you know, their median income on housing. Granted, that's one unfortunate aspect of things is everyone needs a place to live, right? Right. Um, so, but the fact that it's nearly 33% higher than where it was, you know, just uh, about two years ago, two or three years ago, is a big deal. Right. So, something important to consider. Um, but I would still encourage people to look at that and be on the sidelines to make uh, an important decision if they're planning on staying in an area for a while and they're kind of setting up you know, their career, their family situation. Granted, the rates are higher, but living within your means, we're gonna talk about that later in our show and kind of in our, our uh, fourth segment. But uh, with that being kind of where we are on, on that front, how does the Fed rate cut aspect of things, if the market's pricing it in, how is that gonna affect the volatility of the market going forward. Yeah, I, I think that's going to be the biggest source of volatility in 2024 uh, that we can see today because there's this big disconnect. And it doesn't sound big, but it's big that the Fed says we're going to cut 0.75% and the market's expecting 1.5% or more rate cuts. Like someone's going to be wrong or they have to meet in the middle, uh, which is probably the least painful. Um, and the, the other caveat of that is is there could be an event that happens. Uh, I, yep. I would think something geopolitical that could happen that is on no one's radar uh, or, you know, I, I hope COVID 2.0 doesn't uh, happen again. But that's like an example of something, you know, COVID was not on anyone's radar Completely for their unexpected 2020 outlook, right? Black so, swan type thing, yep. But, you know, with the, the current goggles that we have on today, the, the clearest view is that, um, you know, the Fed thinks three cuts, the market thinks six. So that's where I, I could see, you know, the stocks pulling back. I could see heightened interest rate volatility when someone's going to call each other's bluff, right? And, mm -hmm. and we need more inflation data to come in. 
And then the other thing is going to be the Fed uh, meetings and Jerome Powell's press conferences and you know how he's talking about uh, their path um, of interest rate cuts. So we'll see. But that's that's where I could see a reason for a five or ten percent correction uh, in stocks. Yeah, and that is one of those things. It's the the crystal ball that no one ever has that we always talk about. That you know, as we're driving ahead. So that really takes it back to our mindset when it comes to planning for clients and the fact that we want to understand all the factors for their individual situation and how it ties into what their capacity or you know the ability to service debt, their ability to go on a vacation, their ability to maintain the lifestyle that they want to. We encourage our clients to do all those things and, and to spend the money that they've saved uh, you know, over the course of their working career and into retirement. So with that, we're going to take a brief break here in a minute. I'm with Dick Schiller. This is Money Sense, and we'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor with Ellen Becker Investment Group. And today we're here with Dick Schiller, one of our friends of EIG who helps us manage our fixed income portfolios. Um, before the break, we were talking about a lot of different things, uh, interest rates, the housing market, kind of tying things up with cash flow. Uh, Dick, I want to just ask you in your kind of opinion on when it comes to planning for clients, because I know that you work with individuals and families as well. Uh, how important do you view as cash flow for people? Yeah, it, it's really the, the basic uh, foundation of, of saving and investing, right? When, when it really boils down to it, if, if a guy or girl walks in off the street and they say, you know, I'm, I'm spending 100 grand a year, but I'm making 80 grand a year, I don't care how good of a job that you, Jamie, or, right. or I do our jobs. Like, I can't help that person. And I wish I could. Uh, and no one likes to hear that advice. Uh, and I personally don't enjoy giving it. But, yeah, you know, cash flow is, is where it starts, right? Right. We yep. need income to be in excess of expenses uh, unless you're lucky enough to win the lottery or have a large family inheritance. Uh, I don't think either of us are. Most of our clients are not the average. Uh, American out there is either. So, you know, that that's really the building block of where it starts is is focusing on cash flow. And then you Absolutely. can build an asset allocation policy that really fits uh, your lifestyle. Yeah. You know, just in my career, going back, working with clients as a financial planner, and then going back beyond that when I was working in, you know, commercial credit, private banking, cash flow was always the core fundamental to everything when it, when it came to working with the client. And understanding that up front was so key because it would kind of delegate what, what we could do in terms of meeting their goals. So now we're in 2024. It's a new year. Uh, many people are thinking about their, their health, you know, physical health, um, but then also maybe their financial health as well. That's, that's kind of an important thing. And when it comes to funding, you know, your retirement plan, looking at maybe going and doing some things additionally, funding um, taxable accounts, whether that's a, a, a joint account with your spouse, or it could be even something that you're considering doing for your kids. Uh, cash flow is really key to set those things up. You know, the other thing that I would mention on that front is, um, you know, you, you hit on it already, living within your means, understanding what you're capable of doing, and then making the right decisions. 
Um, so those are a couple of, of really key points. Now, uh, we've talked about it in a previous show where it's, you know, making a commitment to defining quality in your portfolio. And I think that's the biggest part of it. And, you know, we don't really like to use the word budget uh, all that often because that's kind of a prohibitive. No one wants to sit down and budget. Some people do, but for the most part, not really. It's like really. talking about diets. No one likes that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so with that being the case, I mean, just, just doing some, some baseline, you know, understanding of what's coming in, understanding your tax situation, because that's a huge aspect of planning too. And then maybe taking it, you know, one step further from there. Um, you know, the other aspect of understanding the cash flow aspect is how you're funding your accounts. Are, are you doing that through your 401k? Are you doing that on your own? So those are some things, you know, I know you, you have a, a, a bit of experience with taxes, Dick, right? Being a CPA. Yeah. Um, how important do you view tax planning within that, that structure as well? I, I view tax planning as, as a great way that uh, we as financial advisors can add a lot of value to the end client. Uh, mm -hmm. I think about at the end of last year, tax loss harvesting. So it was a, it was a great year uh, in terms of technology, right? Anything AI. Market breadth was extremely narrow, meaning we had, we had four stocks in our portfolio that were up in excess of 50%. But yeah, we didn't perform that high. So that means that the other 28 stocks that we had right. in our portfolio were flat to down. And, and in some of those cases, we're, we're down 20%, right? Like energies didn't work, materials didn't work, utilities didn't work, real estate didn't work. There are, there are so many sectors that, you know, everyone's talking about the S&P being up 24% uh, last year. And a lot of that was all driven by either Eli Lilly and Novo Nordis and the GLP-1 weight loss drugs or technology. It was <laughs> right. those two. If, if you were in any other segment of uh, the market, you know, you had a good chance of being flat to down for the year. So from a tax perspective, what we were doing was we were saying, okay, let's let's try to keep capital gains taxes as low as possible for the, oh, the taxable absolutely. accounts. Yep. And and that's it, it's it's easy to do, but it really takes being proactive. And I think that's where if you have a financial advisor to, to partner with, um, they should be coming to you saying, hey, this is what we're doing proactively to make sure that when April comes around next year, you're not getting a big surprise. And yep. we're doing everything we can because the cutoff is 1231. So we have to do everything we can before the end of the year to make sure that your tax bill come April yep. is, is as low as possible. Now, we can't obviously get rid of capital gains taxes in their entirety, right? At some point, you have to pay the piper, yeah. uh, but we, we can definitely minimize them from, from year to year. Yeah, tax loss harvesting has become an extremely important thing. And quite frankly, that's one of the reasons why EIG started our tax division. And it's, it's really important because not only do we want to ensure that we're preparing taxes correctly, but we're also planning properly throughout the year and taking all those things into consideration. Um, but yeah, thank you for weighing in on that. That is, uh, that's really important. You know, I was also curious, you mentioned AI uh, earlier and there, you know, that was something that is, was like the biggest buzzword of last year. I think, I don't know what the biggest buzzword of 2024 is going to be if it's a carryover because AI is still such a hype right now. Mm -hmm. um, those were those four stocks that you had in, you know, probably did the greatest performance that, you know, one of the probably four of the seven, magnificent seven, right? Um, but let's talk just for a minute about another kind of thing that's been 
back in the limelight, and that would be Bitcoin. Um, you know, here at our in our strategies at Ellenbecker, we don't incorporate cryptocurrencies just because there are a lot of factors for that, and we certainly you know we're understanding it. We could we can provide some element of uh, understanding around what it is. Uh, it's not a recommendation, but let's talk for a minute about the restructuring of the Bitcoin or crypto and now what what happened recently with that. Yeah, so Bitcoin has definitely come back uh, into the limelight after it had a tremendous year. Uh, we talk often about that JP Morgan uh, quilt chart and they, they go through every single asset class and what are the returns for the year. And uh, it, one, it shows, I mean, how important diversification is because nothing is ever consistently up at the top. Um, but if there were to be one thing over the last 10 years that is the closest to the top, it would be Bitcoin, right? And, you know, lo looking back, uh, gosh, I, I still have I've spent a lot of time trying to understand it. I don't understand it. But just from a pure price perspective, it's clear that if, you know, we, our clients would have bought a little bit of Bitcoin 10 years ago, we'd all be wealthier uh, today. But why it's really come into the limelight recently is because the SEC recently approved uh, an ETF structure for Bitcoin. So uh, a number of large, uh, very reputable institutions such as Fidelity, iShares, you know, Invesco, Grayscale, Wisdom Tree, uh, to name a few, they, they have all submitted applications to the SEC for an ETF structure to buy Bitcoin. And why this is meaningful is because we can buy ETFs at Schwab and mm -hmm. Fidelity, right? And right. Prior to this, if a client said, hey, I want to buy some Bitcoin, you know, I'd say, well, one, we don't invest in that personally here. But if you want to, you have to go to Coinbase or, or yep. go to uh, PayPal or, or Robinhood, I believe, do this. And you have to open up your own digital wallet. And then, then you make the purchase. Um, Very and impractical. Yeah, I mean, impractical. You know, just, yep. And, and I, I think what's gotten a little bit lost in the hype is is there have been some some major findings of fraud within this where all of a sudden, you know, your your money's in this digital wallet and then it's gone. Right. Right. Part of the reason why we partner with a custodian like like Charles Schwab, um, you know, TD Ameritrade, which is now Charles Schwab, is that there there are protections and safeguards for for you, yep. uh, the client. And I have to always give the asterisks is if, hey, if this is in digital wallet XYZ, I, I, I don't think you have great protection. If something goes wrong, that might be on you. Right. Um, so this ETF, I think it is a game changer, but also the, I think it's a perfect example of uh, buy the rally, buy the hype and sell the news. Because what have we seen with Bitcoin as everyone was looking forward to this ETF approval uh, it, it did end up getting approved, right? We have 10 or 11 different ETFs we can use out there. Uh, but once it got approved, Bitcoin peaked at $49,000 and yeah. it's dropped, I think, to the low 40s. So it's, it's really yeah. round turned after it got approved. Um, so that's something to be careful about, right? It, it, it really max is. hype and then it sold off pretty strong. Yep. And um, with that, uh, thank you. We're going to be right back after this quick break. Thank you. Welcome back to Money Sense. This is Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor and Certified Financial Planner at Ellen Becker Investment Group. Today, our special guest is Dick Schiller. We've been talking about a lot of, a lot of great things here today. Uh, we kind of wrapped up 2023, kind of where we were, talked about kind of where we're headed 
in terms of the rates environment in 2024. And then we spent a lot of time talking about housing, cash flow. And then before the break, we were talking about Bitcoin, of all things, which really hasn't been in the news all that much until probably the latter part of last year when we started to see things kind of resurge there. Um, and the big news as of late is that it's uh, it was approved for an ETF. There's a lot of different uh, companies out there that are sponsoring it as an ETF, which is a bit of a, of a game changer for something that is emerging as a potential asset class. Again, not, not something that we typically advise people on owning, but uh, for purposes of just reflecting on that, if you had bought Bitcoin in 2021 at its high and held it to its low point, which occurred you know, kind of toward the end of 2022, you had been down about 85%. Or so 80 yeah. 83 yeah yep and then you know year to date or i should say through last year it was up something like 300 percent right three right. over 300 so um yeah just it you have some thoughts on that dick just in terms yeah of uh, you you hit the nail on the head with just the volatility of it um you know you can rewind that chart and go back to 2010 and uh although this you know might make people feel terrible we would be talking about bitcoin in terms of pennies uh, and not yeah. dollars, let alone hundreds of dollars, let alone thousands of dollars. But in in 2010, Bitcoin was under 50 cents. Um, so I, I I I see those uh, those memes that are kind of funny out there that are saying, you know, I I use Bitcoin. This currency is worthless. I use 100 <laughs> Bitcoin to buy my uh, pizza delivered to me at a college party. And like, well, you're that 10, Man. 10 Bitcoin would be worth half a million dollars Could have today. Big steak <laughs> and Domino's yeah, at that point. Exactly. So hope you yep. have uh, extra toppings on that pizza. Yeah, right. Um, but no, you know, if if you just look at the price and the data, and you know, put uh, whether you're Bitcoin bull or bear, put it all aside. Uh, what what you have to realize is that there is uh, extreme volatility. Right. You mentioned yep. it down eighty percent in a year, up three hundred percent the next year. And that hasn't changed. If anything, it's been even more drastic as you go back and look throughout the 2010s, right? Like 2013, again, 80% correction, 500% rally. Sure. 2011, 94% correction, 15,000% rally. So it's really all over the board yeah. in terms of volatility. And I and I just thought it would be notable to at least mention it because it has been something that's been in the news lately. And um we could do a whole show probably on just that, but you know the underlying aspects of of crypto and you know the blockchain and so many of those things that are kind of emerging. Um, but yeah, so thanks for sharing your insights on that, Dick. Um, you know, kind of thought we'd wrap up the show today in talking about something a little bit you know different. And uh, Dick, you referenced a recent poll, a survey that you. Uh, found from Morningstar, which is a big sponsor. We use Morningstar for a lot of our data analytics here. And Morningstar is a uh, an analytical company, right? Um, do you want to share the report and kind of some facts that uh, relate to the top reasons why people either continue to work with or don't work with their financial advisor? Yeah, totally. I, I really wanted to bring this in on the radio show, and I think it's a great Way to wrap up, uh, Morningstar. Like you said, they come out with with a bunch of white papers, uh, both at you know the stock level, but then also just relevant to the RAA industry uh, in general, the registered investment advisor industry. And uh, one of their recent reports 
uh, was titled The Top Reasons Clients Keep Working with Their Investment Advisors. And it sparked my interest. And you know, I read the report and I said, well, my thought process was if these are the most important things to our clients, if we're not doing them, you can also read this report as these are the top reasons to get fired if you are not doing these things well. <laughs> uh, so I just wanted to share the the poll, 37%, the number one, I was I thought, well, it's all going to be focused on like investment returns and, and performance, right? That has to be. No, the number one is actually discomfort handling a person's own uh, finances. They want a partner. They want someone in the trenches with them. Uh, that two things came up, uh, two words I noticed that came up a couple different times. Uh, create comfort. Comfort was mm -hmm. one. Yep. Uh, and I translate that also to confidence, having confidence in your own plan. And then the second one is also fostering trust, right? And, you know, money doesn't go up and, and grow, you know, just straight up and to the right. And if it did, we wouldn't need financial advisors, right? Like this is truly a, a road uh, that is not uh, just straight down, you know, 94 right. and put it on cruise control, right? We're, we're dodging uh, potholes. Uh, we, are, we are dodging snowstorms. We are dodging ice banks. Uh, and, and you really... <laughs> It, it, it's really valuable to have a partner to do that with. Uh, and that was the number one reason of why people would have an advisor, 37%. The second one was actually quality of, of advice at 22%. That's what we were talking about earlier about uh, taxes, uh, RMD, uh, how to prepare for that. Uh, you know, having someone that you can call and you know it's not just a 1-800 Vanguard number like you have a financial advisor that will walk sure. you step by step yep. to make the right decisions here. Uh, the third one which I personally think should be number one but the third one at 16% was behavioral coaching. So this behavioral coaching is you know when when times get really tough do you sell at the bottom and when times are really good do you buy at the top uh, or is it the opposite and a financial advisor being that you know push and pull of trying to fight your natural inherent biases. Uh, and then last but not least, were returns uh, at, at 12%. So that's number four. Number four was, was returns, something that I thought would have been closer to the top. But, you know, I, I think people, uh, especially with the financial advisor mindset, they, they really just want a partner. They want uh, to create trust. They, they want confidence. And, you know, earning a satisfactory return is, is maybe just as good versus – you know, buying Bitcoin because we all, looking back, we all should have bought Bitcoin and been up 10,000%, right? Yeah. We'd all or be the on Magnificent the Seven, you know, exactly. that would have been great too, right? Exactly, Absolutely. exactly. So I just thought those that was really good to share with uh, your listeners and something that, that I think as we've partnered with EIG for the last seven, eight years, I, I see you guys doing it so, so well time after time. Thank you so much, Dick. Yeah, that's a great compliment. We appreciate it. You know, talking about the dynamics at play with clients when they come in, and as we sit with them and learn about their situation, everyone's got a unique, you know, uh, set of box of life, right, that, that they bring, either whether, whether it's their relationships or their family or their career. You know, you kind of have to understand all those things and then really confidently put together a plan that works for their unique situation. Um, I know that a lot of what we were talking about earlier with, um, you know, certain stocks or investing in, you know, high risk type of investments that have maybe high returns, but high risk, you know, it, it really does tie back to understanding what someone's asset allocation should look like. So that's the, the mix, right, of how much they should have in 
risk on assets versus risk uh, downside risk protected assets. And that's a key area that we look to you for on the bond management side. And so with that being kind of like in front of us here, I, I just want to get your thoughts on that, where you've seen rates go from the last three three years or so to current. Uh, where, where does that put us in terms of yields, yield to maturities, and what would be expected in terms of, of a good fixed income portfolio right now? Yeah, sure. So at the peak when rates, the tenure was at close to 5% back in October, we were building bond ladders, so 10 years and ladder at, at 7%, even a little bit higher than that, 7%. And that is per year, uh, 7% per year for 10 years, which is doubling your money, rule of 72. Yep. Uh, that since has pulled back as interest rates have pulled back, but we're still able to buy bonds at, at, at least in the high fives to, to low sixes at current market rates. Uh, and I don't think higher for longer is dead. That's still a great return, right? Yeah. And if you have a very large nest egg, uh, it's not it's not Tina. There is no alternative to stocks, right? Five right. or six percent is a is a pretty good number uh, to to allocate a, a portion of your portfolio to. So um, that has me excited and and optimistic. It's a much more balanced conversation than where it was two years ago. That's great. So thank you for that. And I know with the current rate environment, you mentioned the risk free, you know, U.S. Treasury paying you know close to five on a six month T bill right now. Uh, or actually north of five, and then with CDs and money markets. Those are all great things, but we kind of bring that back to making sure that people are understanding where to have their money and in the right places. So those types of instruments I just referenced are great for emergency funds, shorter-term money. Maybe you've got money on the sidelines, you're going to buy a house soon. But for your longer-term portfolio money, that 10-year laddering strategy has worked out so well, especially during the time that we, we saw the Barclays aggregate, which is the, the bond index, down close to stock performance lows uh, in 2022. I think the Barclays ag was down, what, about 17 or so? Um, and so that worked out extremely well. Uh, so as we're kind of wrapping up the final segment here, Dick, I, I, I'm just going to put it out there. We're in an election year. And I'll never forget the last one. <laughs> um, and so here we go, right? You know, we're always going to stay neutral on political views and things here, which is a, probably a wise thing. But when it comes to election years in general, what is the, the standard that, that we typically see with the stock market? How does it usually perform? Yeah. Uh, what a curveball to end. No, this is great, though, Jamie. I'm, you know, what I love is really just trying to look with unbiased lens uh, at the data. And one of the interesting uh, tidbits that I've seen out there has been that if you look when, when there's an incumbent president that is going up for reelection. So this is, you know, Joe Biden going for his second four year term um, versus in comparison. I'm, I'm not talking about if Joe Biden were to be there eight years and it would be both a toss up on the left and the right. Um, but because he is going up for reelection this year, uh, the times that this has happened between now and, and I think the study started like in the 1930s, the stock market has been up every single year when the incumbent is going up for re-election. So 100% yep. of the time. So um, with that, I think it's a great way to end on a very positive note that there are some things to, to be hopeful for uh, in 2024. So we'll see uh, if that streak is broken or not in this year. Absolutely. And in years where it hasn't been the incumbent running, it's still been marginally 
pretty close. It's with, been good. Within right. about a percent. Better, better so. than average, uh, but but not 100%. So great. Well, thank you for sharing that great knowledge, and thanks for going through all the great things we talked about today. We've been meeting with Dick Schiller from Pavlik Investment Advisors. This is Jamie Williams, Wealth Advisor with Ellen Becker Investment Group. And I'd like to share that Money Sense airs on Saturdays from 2 to 3 p.m. and on Sundays from 12 to 1. If you enjoyed today's show and want to learn more about EIG and our upcoming events, please visit ellenbecker.com or call us at 262-691-3200. As always, I hope we've made a difference in your personal and financial well-being. Remember, before we plan, before we advise, before we invest, we always listen. Thank you. Have a great day.